Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. And let me say that this week, what I've been doing is teaching that God loves us, that his nature is love. First John chapter four, verse eight. But there's a lot of people that get this confused because they look at life and there's a lot of bad things that happen in life. And I tell you, I hadn't even touched on this and I'm even afraid to mention it because I'm afraid I might get started teaching on it because this is one of my pet peeves. But there's people that teach that God controls everything. And that if you had, like they were telling Ashley and Carly that maybe it's God's will that this happens to your daughter. After all, it couldn't happen if God didn't permit it. In my estimation, that is the worst doctrine in the body of Christ. And it is prevalent in the body of Christ, thinking that God did it. So if you have that doctrine that God is sovereign and that God controls everything, then people blame God for the deaths the sicknesses, the disease, the divorce, they blame God. I've actually, anyway, like I said, I could get started on this. But things like that give people a wrong impression about God. They blame God for all the bad stuff that happens. And also people interpret the Old Testament where God did strike people with leprosy and an angel went out and killed 185,000 men in the Syrian army in one night and things happen and stuff like this. And they see this and they think that God is the one that causes all of these problems. And what that does, it confuses what the true nature of God is like. I've been trying to show you that that is not how God started with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, he didn't just impute their sins unto them. Romans 5, 13 says, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And God dealt with people in mercy for the first 2,000 years. Abraham married his half-sister, which according to Leviticus 18 was a sexual abomination punishable by death. You had to stone him to death. Abraham was living in a sexual abomination and yet he's called the friend of God. God didn't impute his sins unto him. And then Abraham's Well, Abraham, that's not all he did. He also lied about his wife and was willing to let somebody else take her twice. And then Isaac did the same thing. And yet Isaac was the blessed of the Lord. And then Jacob came along and Jacob married two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And he was married to both of them. According to Leviticus 18, you stone a person to death for doing that. And instead of Jacob being stoned to death, he wrestled with an angel of God and prevailed. And God changed his name to Israel And he became the guy that the nation of Israel came out of. And God blessed him. God wasn't imputing their sins unto them for the first 2,000 years. But when the law came, God began to impute their sin. The first murderer on the face of the earth was protected by God, Cain. The first person who broke the law picked up sticks on the Sabbath day so that he could make a fire and cook some food. And they said, show him no mercy and kill him. Can you see that there was a difference when the law came along? When the law came along, man, people began to start being judged. And sad to say, most people have thought this is the way that God is. He's a harsh God that's hard to appease and he's holding our sins against us. And if you do something wrong, God is not going to bless you. He's going to punish you. But for 2,000 years, God dealt with the world in mercy, not in judgment. Then the law came. And the reason it came is because people were taking God's lack of punishment 
as approval. And so they just dropped all standards. They were living like animals. And God literally had to do something to restrain the amount of sin in the earth or there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. That's how bad the human race was getting. And so as a last resort, God gave the law that put fear in people, made them depart from evil. I think that's Proverbs 16, 6 or something like that says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil and by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. Fear can make you not go do some things, but it can't set you free. It doesn't bring you into a relationship with God. But God gave the law finally to put fear in people, not to set you free, but to bind you. And I, yesterday morning, I used all of these scriptures that the law made sin come alive. The law strengthened sin. The law is administration of death, administration of condemnation. It makes you guilty. It stops your mouth. It gives you a knowledge of sin and all of these other things. I used all of these verses. The law wasn't given to help you but it was given to shut you up is what it says in Galatians chapter three until the faith should come through Christ Jesus. It was our schoolmaster, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster and we should not be living with this fear of God's wrath and punishment and rejection and we shouldn't be trying to keep up to some standard so that God could love us and that God can answer our prayers. And boy, that's a mouthful that I just said right there. That's the reason it's taken me three times to say all of that stuff. But that's important. And when I say things like this, people will think, so you're just saying sin's not a big deal. You're just saying, let's just ignore sin. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. And this is what I want to try and get across this morning. I am not saying that sin isn't a bad thing. There's many scriptures I could bring to bear on this about Isaiah chapter 59, that my hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor my ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have separated between you and God. And there are just so many scriptures against sin. Sin is a terrible thing. So I am not making light of sin and saying that, well, we can just ignore sin now because we're under the new covenant. I'm saying just the opposite. Sin is terrible, but there was a payment made for our sin. And the payment for our sin is so great that it has canceled the sin debt of mankind against God. God is not dealing with mankind on the basis of their sins. Have you found Isaiah 40 yet? Well, look over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm trying to get over there to Isaiah 40, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says in verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God who hath. The word here is very important. Hath reconciled us. It didn't say all things are of God who can reconcile us, who wants to reconcile us. No, he hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Ministers are supposed to be preaching that you have been reconciled. The word reconciled means to make friendly again or to bring into harmony. When you reconcile your bank account to what the bank sends you, you reconcile, you make them come into harmony. 
When you play a guitar, you have to reconcile those strings to each other so that it's not out of tune. It makes a pleasant sound instead of a bad sound. The word reconcile means we've been made friendly again to God, that God's not mad at us. He has already made you friendly. Even people that haven't accepted Jesus have had their sins paid for. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus has paid for the sins of the whole world. And yesterday morning I shared out of Hebrews chapter 9 and I didn't even get into Hebrews chapter 10, which would have been wonderful if I could have gotten that far. But it, you've been sanctified and perfected forever. Sins past, present, and even future have been prayed for, paid for. Jesus has paid for sins, but that doesn't mean that everybody's saved because not everybody puts faith in what he's done. It says in Ephesians 2, 8, by grace are you saved through faith. God's grace is the same towards everybody, whether they are born again or not. God has extended grace towards all men. Titus chapter two, verse 11 says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. God's grace is the same towards everybody, Christian, non-Christian. Godly, ungodly, grace is the same towards everybody, but not everybody's saved because you have to put faith in God's grace. Faith and grace together is what releases the power of God. But God's grace is the same. If it wasn't the same, it wouldn't be grace. If he only gave grace to people that deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. Grace by definition is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. And so grace is the same towards everybody. God by grace has paid for the sins of the whole world, but people have to accept it. And we are supposed to be preaching this message that God has forgiven you. He has died for you. Now, will you receive what he's done? Will you make him your Lord and savior? But instead the church primarily is saying, you're going to hell, repent or else, turn or burn. And God's angry at you. They aren't preaching the goodness of God. Romans chapter two, verse four says, the goodness of God leads men to repentance. You can draw more flies with honey than you can vinegar. And if we were out preaching the grace of God, that's the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter one, verse 16. So in verse 19, this second Corinthians five nineteen, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And here's how he did it. How does God reconcile? How does God make us friendly and bring us into harmony? How can a holy God fellowship with unholy man? It tells you right here. He was reconciling the world unto himself and the way he did it is he not imputing their trespasses unto them. God didn't impute. The word impute means to put on your account, to charge against you. God isn't holding sin against you. And he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. We aren't supposed to be holding people's sins against them. In the next verse, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. God's reconciled to you. Now you be reconciled to him. God is now friendly towards you. He's not mad at you. Will you accept this? Will you receive it? Or are you going to continue to try and do things to appease an angry God? 
And then in verse 21, for he, talking about God, hath made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How did God reconcile us? Is it by him just saying, you know what? I think I'm just going to quit holding people's sins against them. I think I'm going to change. No longer am I angry. No longer am I going to judge sin. No longer will I punish sin. I just change the rules. Nope, God can't do that. God is holy. God is just. And he said that when you sin, you die. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. So how can a holy God just all of a sudden not impute our sins unto us? The way he did it, he didn't look over sin. He didn't decide that sin is not bad. But what he did, he made his son Jesus to be sin for you. And he punished Jesus for what you should have suffered and what I should have suffered. Jesus suffered for our sins. God did not just overlook sin. He paid for it. He paid for our sins. And when we sit there and think that we also have to pay for it, that's just crazy. It's not honoring God. You know, it's like if I went up to buy something and man, I started to give them my credit card and Jesus just steps in and says, put it on my account. And if he pays for it, if he paid for it, even though I'm the one getting the merchandise, even though I'm the one that should have been charged, if Jesus paid for it, it would be stupid on my part to say, well, I've got to pay something. After all, I'm the one that's getting this. And so, you know, the credit card company sends you a bill and you go ahead and start making monthly payments on something that has already been paid for. Man, something's wrong with you if you do that. You think, but I'm the one that's got this thing in my house. It's my benefit. I ought to be doing something. That's wrong. If it's paid for, it's paid for. Jesus became sin for us. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. Jesus bore my sins in his body on the cross. There is no reason that I ought to have to suffer shame and separation for my failure because Jesus paid for it. And when I say things like that, people think, well, you're just making light of sin. Well, I think people that don't say things like that are making light of the payment that was made for my sin. Some people are magnifying sin above what Jesus did. But look over here in Isaiah chapter 40. Amen. I did make it over there. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It says, comfort ye. Comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, I wish I had time to go through all of these scriptures, but this is talking about John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter three, Mark chapter one, and in Luke chapter three, these exact verses are quoted by the writer saying that this, it, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let me just read something to you quickly out of Luke chapter three right here. I'm not gonna go through all of this, but real quickly in Luke chapter three, 
in verse one, it says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itura and of the region of whatever that is and all of these other things. Ananias and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins as it is written. And this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. In the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. If you continue to read in Isaiah 40, this is a quotation from Isaiah 40. So the reason I bring this out is to say that Isaiah chapter 40 isn't talking about the time that Isaiah was writing, but he as a prophet was prophesying about the coming of the Messiah and what John the Baptist was supposed to be speaking. And he was supposed to be saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley will be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked will be made straight. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And basically from Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through nearly the rest of the book of Isaiah, it's all talking about the new covenant and prophesying what Jesus would do. And so with that in mind, now look back at Isaiah chapter 40 verse 2. Here's what John was supposed to be speaking. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and say unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is purged. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This was not fulfilled at this time because after this is when Israel went into the Babylonian captivity and suffered for 70 years. And I don't believe that anybody, any group of people, Israel going through the Holocaust or anything has suffered and paid double for all their sins. This was a prophecy about what Jesus would do is what this is talking about. This is saying, speak comfortably and tell them that your sins have been pardoned, your iniquities have been purged, and that through Jesus, Jesus paid twice what the sin of the entire human race was worth. That's a huge statement. And again, most people think that this you know, this doesn't make sense because we've had sin so magnified and talked about how deadly it is. And I believe that. Sin is terrible. I probably hate sin more than most people in here. And some people think, well, you, you know, what right do you have to say that? You know, in the book of Isaiah, in the sixth chapter, Isaiah was caught up into the presence of the Lord. And he, it says in Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the Lord appeared unto him and Isaiah fell on his face and says, Lord, depart from me because I'm an unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When you see the glory of God, you instantly have an intuitive uh, revelation of your unworthiness compared to his glory. And you know what? I have seen the glory of the Lord and I've been caught up in the presence of God. And man, I repented in sackcloth and ashes and I hate sin. I believe probably more than most people do. I hate sin. But 
As bad as sin is, the atonement of Jesus is that much greater. And most people are not magnifying what Jesus has done. They're magnifying sin and talking about how bad it is. I'm not diminishing how bad sin is, but the atonement, the price that was paid for your redemption was double what you owed. Amen. I saw a man out there. I prayed with him. I think it was Mitch back here. And he had a shirt on that says one drop of his blood cleansed all of my sin. One drop of Jesus' blood paid for more than the sins of the entire human race. You know, if you had one of these uh, scales where there's a fulcrum in the middle and then these little things on the side held up by chains. And if you put all of the sins of the human race, the Holocaust, every vile, ungodly thing, this man that just had these three young girls Uh, captive in his home for 10 years and the terrible things that he did. If you took everything like that, that the whole human race has ever done or will ever done and put it on one side, one drop of Jesus blood over here would tip the scales. It's worth more than everything else. You know, I said that one time and I had somebody get really upset and say, how dare you say that? Jesus had to shed all of his blood. It wasn't just one little bit. Every bit of his blood was important. Man, get a life. (laughs) You're missing my point. I'm saying Jesus was so holy and so pure that his purity, one drop of his blood was worth more than the iniquity of the entire human race. Jesus paid double what it was worth. And if you could really understand what Jesus did to pay for our sins, then that would break this sin consciousness and this unworthiness over us. But instead of focusing on the atonement, we have been primarily focused on the transgression. And because of that, most of us feel like, well, even though Jesus paid, I've also got to pay. I've got to suffer. I've got to limp through life because of the things that I've done. And I'm telling you, that is not honoring Jesus. It is honoring Jesus. I don't care how sorry you are. If you're the sorriest saint in this whole room, if you truly honor Jesus, you ought to say, I am free. I am cleansed and I am not going to bear shame and guilt. Because Jesus' atonement is infinitely greater than your transgression. Man, that's powerful. And like I said, this basically just continues through the rest of the book of Isaiah. Let me turn over to Isaiah chapter 52. And in Isaiah chapter 52, in verse 13, it says, Behold my servant. And this again is talking about Jesus. This is all prophecy about the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee. This is talking about in the same way that the Jews have suffered and that they suffered shame. Jesus took our shame. It says this over in the 53rd chapter. I'll be getting to that in a minute. And in the same way, since we've suffered, Jesus became sin for us and suffered everything that you and I have ever suffered. So in verse 14, as many were astonished at thee, his visage, that's just an old English word for face. His face was so marred more than any man. This means that Jesus' face was disfigured, marred more than any person's face who has ever lived on this earth. 
You know, we saw this movie, The Passion of the Christ. And I'm not critical of Mel Gibson. I mean, he did as good as I believe you could possibly do. But you just can't truly portray what Jesus went through because it was greater than just the beating by the Romans. It was greater than that. It goes on to say in this verse, his face was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. This, if you look this up like in the NIV, it says he didn't even look human. They showed Jesus brutalized, but it still looked like a human being hanging on the cross. But according to this scripture, Jesus didn't even look human. His face was more marred. I had a man one time that literally his face was eaten away with cancer. You could see up inside of his face and his raw flesh was exposed and he was bleeding and fluids coming out. He had a towel over his face and it was one of the grotiest things I've ever seen in my life. Jesus looked worse than that is what the scripture says. He didn't look human. And I believe that the way you understand this is that not only did the Romans beat him, but every sickness, every disease of the human race entered into his physical body so that it was much more than what the Romans did to him. Have you ever seen these people with elephantitis? And I've seen things on the internet where people have these gross and moles and stuff so that their legs are like two and three times the size of their waist and they're distorted and just every birth defect, every bad thing, every swollen head, everything that has ever happened to the human race, all sickness and all disease entered into the body of Jesus so that he didn't even look like a human being hanging on that cross. It was a million times worse than what Mel Gibson portrayed. That didn't even really do justice to it. And again, I'm not critical because if I was making a movie, how do you portray all of this stuff? Plus, that's only the physical things that he suffered. Jesus suffered the grief and the agony of becoming the very thing that he hated, sin. He suffered the agony of being separated from his father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The spiritual, emotional things that Jesus suffered was more than his physical suffering. I, I don't even have the words. I don't think anybody has the words to describe what Jesus went through. And when a person sits there and says, but I'm so bad, how could God ever forgive me? You don't have a clue. You don't, you've never had a revelation of what Jesus paid. If you were to see his suffering, you could never say that. Jesus paid more than you owed. It'd be like me wanting to buy something and I don't have $10 and I look for help and somebody just plumps down a million dollars. Will this cover it? Amen. More than covers it. Jesus paid for your sins so that God is just. He didn't just say, well, I think I'm going to quit being just. I'm just going to quit holding people's sins against them. Nope, that's not how he did it. He paid for your sins and he paid infinitely more than your sins and my sins deserve. You know, I had a friend of mine talk about a guy that got a speeding ticket and he was feeling really terrible. And I mean, he was really speeding. He was going to get a huge fine. And he went to court and his neighbor, it turned out, was the judge. And when he saw that his neighbor was the judge, he thought, man, mercy. He was hoping that he would get some mercy. And because the judge was a just judge, 
he struck the gavel and said, your fine is 200 and something dollars or whatever. You're guilty. You've got to pay. And he was just shocked because he said, I thought he was my friend. But see, he was judge. He had to be just. He passed a judgment. The guy was guilty. But because he was his friend, he walked around, took his robes off, and he took the money out, and he paid the man's fine. Now, see, that's what Jesus did. God is just. And God can't just say, well, I'm going to quit holding people's sins against them. I'm going to quit being the way I was. No, God is just and holy, and because we sin, sin's got to be judged. Man, I grew up in a church where the guy used to scream and yell that. That was one of his favorite things. Sin's got to be judged. Your sin's got to be judged. But what he was missing is my sin has been judged. And I don't have to bear the sin. He would say things like, if you don't pay your tithes, you're going to pay it anyway. God will put you in the hospital and take it from you in doctor bills. That's wrong. Jesus bore my sin. And even if I, if I don't pay my tithes, I'm stupid. But God loves me, stupid. Amen. God loves me. He's paid my debt and he's not going to punish me. And so this is what he did. Jesus suffered so much he didn't even look human. We don't even have a clue what Jesus suffered. You know, Charlie led us in that song, we'll never know how much it cost to see our sins upon that cross. Most of us do not have a revelation of this. You know, when I was looking at this show, The Passion of the Christ, I went there expecting to just be totally transformed by this and have an epiphany. And I was disappointed. It was disappointing. And I remember standing there, sitting there, looking at the crucifixion and thinking, God, what's wrong with me? This doesn't bless me. It actually, I was, I was disappointed. And I was praying about this while I was watching the movie and the Lord spoke to me and he says, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has made the crucifixion and what the price that Jesus paid more real to you than what you're seeing portrayed. This is only portraying a small portion of the physical suffering. You've had a revelation of the agony that Jesus went through spiritually, emotionally, And by the Holy Spirit, the Lord spoke to me and said, you have a greater revelation of the suffering that I went through than my disciples who were standing there watching it happen because they didn't understand the significance. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to explain it to them. And the Lord told me, he says, you have a greater revelation of the atonement than the people who were watching it happen. You can know things by your spirit, through your heart, better than you can know them by sight or feeling. The Holy Spirit can reveal this to you, but sad to say, most Christians don't have a good revelation of the price that Jesus paid. And so when you sit there and say that God isn't imputing man's sins unto them, they just immediately think that I'm diminishing sin. I'm saying sin's not a big deal. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying sin's a bigger deal probably than what you are. But I'm saying that the price that was paid for those sins is a big deal, amen. And that the atonement is greater than the offense. So much so that I do not have to go around bearing my shame and unworthiness. I have been redeemed. I am reconciled unto God. And this is my ministry is to preach reconciliation. That Jesus has already done it. Amen. 
So in chapter 53, it says in verse one, who hath believed I report? Man, I could preach on this for an hour. Again, we skip over these verses. But if you understand what he's just saying, that this Messiah, God is coming and God is gonna be so uh, stricken with our plight that his face is gonna look worse than any person's face that has ever lived on this planet. His form is gonna be so marred that he's not even gonna look human. Who can believe that God would do this? Who can believe this kind of thing? This is what he's saying. Who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who will God reveal these truths to? In verse two, it says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Again, every one of these phrases is pregnant with meaning. Here's God almighty come to earth. And instead of being the biggest, the strongest, the mightiest, he grows up like a little tender plant. He comes meek and lowly, not in majesty. If we could even imagine ourselves being God and wanting to save our creation, the human race, I can guarantee you all of us would have come and we would have been majestic. We would have been awesome. I'd have been the strongest man, uh, you know, manifestation of manhood that ever was. I'd have made Samson look puny in comparison. Man, I'd have, I'd have been awesome. And yet look what it says. He's like a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. The word comeliness means beauty. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was not a pretty person. Jesus was not a good looker. I don't believe he was necessarily ugly, but he was just common. He was just normal. When we, when, if you would have been one of his disciples and if you would have seen Jesus, it would have taken more faith to believe in him as one of his disciples than it does for us today. Because you would have been looking at that physical body. You would have seen him get tired and sweaty. You would have smelt his B.O. I know that some people think that's somehow or another sacrilegious or, or, you know, heresy or something, but Jesus didn't stay in a holiday inn every night. He didn't carry a suitcase with him. He didn't have a change of clothes. He didn't take a shower. He didn't wash his hair every day. He was in the hot Judean sun and he'd walk 20 miles a day. He got smelly. He got tired. He got hungry. These guys saw him go to the bathroom. It's hard to look at somebody and say that you see him going to the bathroom and you can smell them. And you say, this is God. It's a lot easier for us to close our eyes and picture him at the right hand of God the Father in majesty and light coming out of him and say, that's God. But they had to deal with his physical body. That was a hindrance. And when, we, when they saw him, there wasn't any beauty in him. There was nothing desirable in Jesus. If you feel like that somehow or another you missed out on the good looks and that you just aren't a pretty person, Jesus was just like you. And you know, this is amazing because he not only suffered on the cross, but for infinite God to limit himself to being in a human body and not the best human body, just a plain, ordinary human body so that people walk by him every day. And here was their creator and they walked by him and didn't even notice him. You know what? That was suffering. 
Here's God Almighty looking at the people that he created and not a single person appreciated him. Nobody knew who he was. You know, I hate to admit it, but I'm human and I've been in places before and I've wondered, does anybody know who I am? (laughs) And man, I'm just on television. Think what it would be like for God to be walking among a crowd and nobody even paying attention to him. That's suffering. Jesus suffered. If you've ever felt insignificant, Jesus felt insignificant. If you ever felt passed over, Jesus felt that for 33 years. Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. He suffered by becoming a man. He had all of these angels worshiping him 24 hours a day. And here on earth, he had people ignoring him and his own brothers and sisters saying, if you're the Christ, why don't you go manifest yourself? They didn't believe in him. Jesus suffered for 33 years. He suffered all kinds of things. In the next verse, in verse three, he is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We ignored him. We didn't appreciate what the Lord did for us. In verse four, it says, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. People were yelling, it's God judging you. If you're God, come down. They taunted him. He suffered their mockery. They blindfolded him and spit in his face and slapped him and said, if you're the Christ, prophesy. Boy, he could have prophesied. He could have told them some things. And yet he, as a lamb before his shears is dumb, he was led to the slaughter. In verse six, it says all we, or excuse me, verse uh, four, five, it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes, we are healed. You know, again, I don't want to take too big of a sideline here, get off track, but this is one reason I have compassion on people who suffer, but I don't have pity for people who suffer. Because Jesus has borne that suffering. He's been through this. And for you to bear it is absolutely unnecessary. It is unnecessary. Now this is completely, politically incorrect today. Because people would criticize me and say, well, you aren't compassionate. Again, I'm I'm admitting that bad things happen. I talked to some people today that had terrible things happen to them. And I can understand why they've had problems But the payment that Jesus made, he bore their sorrows and carried their griefs. There is zero reason for you to carry sorrow and grief. Jesus' supply is so infinitely greater than your need that your need isn't even worth comparing to it. And again, most people don't like that because you say, you're diminishing my problem. No, I am magnifying the fact that Jesus has paid for your grief and your sorrow and his supply is so infinitely greater that if you would open up and receive it, you should be able to rejoice regardless of what you've been through. It says in Romans chapter eight, verse 17 and 18, right there somewhere, it says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When we get to heaven, people aren't gonna limp in and talk about, oh man, how bad 
earth was and how terrible their life was. They are going to have a full revelation of God's supply and it's going to be so awesome that all of the former things will pass away. People will forget it. The people who went through the Holocaust, if they knew the Lord when they get to heaven, I guarantee you they are going to be so excited that they'll never even think about it. No big deal because the supply is so much greater than the need. And even now, if you could see what Jesus has paid for, there is no reason for you to limp through life and suffer and bear hurt and pain because God's love towards you and his supply towards you is so much greater than whatever your need is. And yet most people, again, are just blinders on and they're only looking at things in the natural and they don't understand how awesome what Jesus did for us. They don't have a revelation of what he paid, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes, we are healed. Verse six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus didn't pay for his own sins. He paid for our sins and all of our sins was laid upon Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't justify himself. He just kept quiet and took our beating. That is unbelievable. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation? That's a way of saying that he didn't have children. For those of you who've been deceived by the Da Vinci Code, Jesus never married Mary Magdalene. He never had children. Here's a scripture that says it. Nobody can declare his generation for he was cut off. That means killed out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he, he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This is talking about that he was crucified between two thieves and yet he was born, buried in uh, Joseph of Arimathea's uh, tomb, a rich man. And that was fulfilled. And um, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What a strong statement. It pleased God the Father to see Jesus suffer. I don't believe it pleased him in the sense that he loved it, but God loved us so much that this was his will. It's what he desired was to sacrifice his son for his great love for us. That is amazing. That is amazing. It pleased the Lord to bruise him he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. That's us. We are the seed of the Lord. Galatians chapter three. He will see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Man, that is unbelievable. Holy God had to judge sin. But what he did was send his son and he judged sin in the flesh of Jesus. 
And when he saw the travail of Jesus and how much Jesus suffered so that his face was marred more than any man, so that he didn't even look human, God the Father says, that's enough. I'm satisfied. And all of his wrath against your sin was paid for. There's no sin left. You know, this is illustrated in the sacrifices. They used to bring a lamb before the high priest and the high priest would examine the lamb to make sure it was without spot and without blemish because it was a picture of Jesus and it had to be holy. But when a person brought the lamb, the priest didn't examine the person bringing the lamb. He didn't say, are you holy? Have you been fasting? Have you prayed? Have you been praying? Have you gone to church? Have you paid your tithes? The very fact that the person brought a lamb showed that they were guilty. They had sin. And the priest didn't examine the individual. He examined the sacrifice. And if the sacrifice was holy, he accepted it. God the Father isn't looking at you and your holiness. He's looking at the sacrifice. And he sees Jesus' sacrifice for you and he's satisfied. It's enough. And for you to feel unworthy and, oh God, how could you ever use me? How could you ever bless me? You are looking at your sin instead of at the sacrifice that was made for your sin. You're magnifying the iniquity instead of magnifying the atonement that was made. Man, this is awesome stuff. Let me share one last verse. Man, I got so many other things I'd like to share out of there. Maybe I'll come back to it tonight. But let's turn over to John chapter 12 and look at this passage. This is right before Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus said this in John chapter 12 and in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. So instead of saying, Father, save me from this hour, he says, Father, glorify thy name. Then came, a voice, came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake unto them. You know, here's people that heard the audible voice of God and some of them tried to explain it away. It's thunder. There's people that think if God would just do something miraculous and make people believe, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't make anybody believe. There are people think if they could just find Noah's Ark, that would prove everything. People that don't want to believe wouldn't believe. They would find some excuse. They'll find, I mean, you look at creation and there's people that look at this and think, oh, it just evolved. How dumb can you get and still breathe? (laughs) Mankind, you could take all of the cumulative power of mankind, all of their money and resources, and they can't make one blade of grass. They can make something that looks like it, but it won't grow, it won't reproduce, it won't produce another blade of grass. If you can go out and see a flower, if you can go out and see the sun and the moon and the stars and everything and not see God, you can miss God in anything. That just defies logic. Evolution is absolutely a lie. It is completely brainless to believe that. It's brainless. How in the world can anybody believe that? 
But faith comes by hearing the word of God. People aren't going to believe because you forced them into it. I've seen people raised from the dead and I've had people come up and say, did the doctor pronounce them dead? Did you have a death certificate? They didn't have a death certificate for Lazarus. And there was people that saw Lazarus come out of the tomb after four days and he stinketh. And there's people that went away and consulted how they could kill Lazarus and Jesus. They saw it happen and didn't believe it. We live in a culture where people don't want to believe in God. It justifies, they want to believe. Evolution is a religion. People want to believe in it because it defies logic. The facts are against evolution. If you don't believe that, get my book on Christian philosophy. And there's so many facts in there that shoot evolution and You see, anyway, they heard the audible voice of God and they said, it's thunder. And Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. People have used this to say that if we just preach Jesus properly, all people will come. You'll have large churches. Everybody will come hear you. That's not true. That's not what this is saying. I can guarantee you some of the best churches I've ever seen are not the largest churches. Some of the largest churches I've ever seen compromise to become large churches. They have theatrical shows. They give little sermonettes, make Christianettes. Just because a church is large does not mean that, you know, you've preached Jesus properly. There's large crowds going to football games. There's large crowds going to rock concerts and all kinds of ungodly things. This isn't saying that if you just preach the gospel, God will draw lots of people unto you. You know, in verse 32 here, the word men is italicized in the King James. One of the things I like about the King James is that if there was a word that wasn't in the original text and they put it in there to make it grammatically correct, like for instance, when Jesus, they came to arrest him and he says, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. The word he is italicized. And there's nothing wrong with that because it makes it grammatically correct. But what he really said was, I am. Here's Jesus, God saying, I am. And 60 people fell backwards to the ground. Amen. So when you see a word italicized, that means that it wasn't in the original language. It was added. And the translators at least had enough integrity to tell you, I added this. And they thought that, here's what it says. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. All what? So they just took a stab at it and thought, well, all men. But the context of this, he had just talked about judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. And then in the next verse, it explains what he was talking about. In verse 33, it said, this he said, signifying what death he should die. This isn't talking about just preaching Jesus properly. Lifting up was talking about crucifixion. It was talking about being lifted up on a cross and he said this signifying what death he would die. And when he was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all judgment unto himself. All of God's wrath unto himself is what this is talking about. When Jesus was crucified, it was like a lightning rod and every bit of wrath that God had towards you, towards me, 
towards any person who has ever or will ever live on this earth and sin. All of our sin was put in his body and God's wrath came on Jesus. He punished Jesus for your sins and my sins so much so that he didn't even look like a physical human being. Jesus suffered more than any of us could ever understand. And if you could get a revelation of that, that's why God isn't imputing sin unto you, not because he just decided to change the rules to let you go to escape without punishment. He punished your sin. He just didn't punish it in you. He put it in his son and he punished Jesus for your sin and my sin. And because of that, brothers and sisters, we do not need to live with a sin consciousness and an unworthiness. And we don't need to believe that God is making your child sick to teach you something and to punish you. He's already punished Jesus. It would be double jeopardy for God to punish you and Jesus. Jesus paid it all so that you don't have to pay any at all. All you can do is just humble yourself and say, God, I received this great salvation. And I'm telling you, that's that's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. The old covenant rightly showed us that sin was terrible and that because you've sinned, you deserve judgment. And it was enforced and people were struck dead and hit with leprosy and God uh, hurt people and did things to people, not because that was the true nature of God, but he just had to do something to restrain sin. And so for a period of time, he was harsh on sin to show us how bad sin was. But that wasn't his true nature. He could have done that from the beginning, but he waited for 2,000 years. And Galatians chapter three says it was only temporary until Jesus should come. And when Jesus came, he became a lightning rod. All of God's wrath against your sin and my sin came on Jesus. And now God's wrath is satisfied. He looks at Jesus and his sacrifice, not at you. And he says, perfect. And he sees you perfect and holy and pure. And now you can enter boldly into the very presence of God without any fear of rejection because of what Jesus did. Isn't that awesome? I tell you, if you don't know Jesus personally today, this would be a great sermon to get saved from through. I tell you what, why in the world would anybody turn this down? But we have millions of people in churches today trying to be good enough and earn God's favor and earn his blessing. I'm telling you that that is an offense against God to think that you could pay for your sins when there's already been such a huge payment made for your sins. Those of you who are standing before God and say, God, I'm believing that you're going to accept me because I've lived better. My goodness outweighs my badness. That's like slapping Jesus in the face. That's like saying Jesus isn't enough. I'm holy enough. God's going to accept me based on my own goodness. Man, if you've heard anything I've said today, you need to repent of that. And you need to make Jesus your savior instead of you trying to save yourself by your own goodness. If you've never been born again, you can receive this. He's already paid for everything. All you've got to do is receive by faith what Jesus has done. And also, if you've been born again, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this gift of speaking in tongues, because I can promise you that you cannot get a revelation 
of what I've talked about with just your human mind. Your human mind cannot grasp what we've talked about. You have to embrace this with your heart. You have to open up your heart and receive this by revelation. And the Bible says that comes through the Holy Spirit. It says that the natural man, talking about this brain, cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You have to understand things through your heart, not through your head. And this is why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. You must have the Holy Spirit reveal these things. And speaking in tongues is a powerful, powerful, powerful tool. It's just like finding a switch and flipping it and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit starts flowing. Revelation starts flowing. It's powerful. So if you don't know Jesus personally, if you've never been born again, if you're still trying to save yourself and trust in your own goodness, you need to be born again. If you've been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need to receive that today. So is there anybody here who would raise their hand and say, you know what, I need one or both of those I'd like to receive right now. I want to pray with you. Here's people right here. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Here's people way over here. Praise God. How many people have we had come and receive? 130? 130 people have received in the last three services, but we've still got people here today that need to receive. Praise God. And I know that there's people who, you know, we're in Atlanta and most of the religious people here teach against the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I hadn't got time to make a point for that today, but let me just tell you, this is my testimony. I was born again when I was eight, but I was baptized in the Holy Spirit when I was 18 and I spoke in tongues when I was 21 and it has changed my life. You would have never seen me on television. I wouldn't have a ministry if it wasn't for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. So I hadn't got time to prove it to you from the word, but it's my testimony that I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit and I speak in tongues and I'm sticking with it. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so if you raised your hand or if you were supposed to raise your hand but didn't do it, would you just get up out of your seat right now and come forward and stand here and let me pray with you and help you to receive. Just come forward right now and let me pray with you. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Just come stand right here. Thank you, Jesus. Awesome, brother. God bless you. God bless you. I believe it's going to change your life. Awesome, awesome. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I know some of you are probably wondering, what are you going to do for these folks? I'm just going to pray for them, give you a free book. I haven't got anything for you to join. I'm not asking anything of you. We're going to give to you. We aren't taking from you. You got nothing to lose. I've been in church services where one person will say, hold on. Another one say, let go. And they're just here hitting you on the back and trying to make you speak in tongues. We aren't going to do any of that. We're just going to pray with you and give you a book and help you to receive. Amen. There's no reason for you not to come. Somebody says, well, what if I go up there and nothing happens? I can guarantee if you don't come up here, nothing's going to happen. You got nothing to lose. Amen. 
Holy Spirit's going to fill all of you. Isn't that awesome? Man, this is nearly too good to be true that God's Holy Spirit would come and live in us. Isn't this awesome to think that God Almighty, you could receive what Jesus received. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you just like he came upon Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Man, we are so blessed. We are so privileged. I don't care what you've done or haven't done. God paid for everything that you've ever done wrong and he loves you and sees you pure and holy and he's going to fill you with his power. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. You know, we've got a meeting with our Bible college people and Wendell told you about that. It's down here, down the escalators, around the uh, restaurant. And so I'm going to dismiss people early today so that they can make this meeting because this, this will change your life. And what I'm going to ask, if you wouldn't mind doing this, rather than me praying for every one of you, we've got Robert over here and we've got a room right here that we call our prayer room. And in there, I've got a, a bunch of books that we're going to give every one of you a book that will explain this. And there's people in there that will pray with you. You did this, was it yesterday morning? And I think just about every person over there received. He actually gets more results in that prayer room than I get out here. And so anyway, this is not, uh, not ministering to you. It's just we're going to go ahead and let Robert and uh, some people take you over there and pray with you. And I believe that today you're going to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, be born again if you haven't received that already. And we're going to help you all we can. So if you would, just follow Robert right here. He's the man that's got his Bible up in the air. And if you'll go with him, it'll only take a moment. He'll pray with you. And praise God, I believe that you are going to receive. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And I'd like to ask our prayer ministers, if they would, to come down here and stand down here at the front and pray with people. And uh, I'm going to release you after these prayer ministers get down here and, and let's give people a moment or two. If they need prayer, allow them the opportunity to come forward and start receiving prayer before you leave. And uh, then I'm going to dismiss you so that uh, we can go ahead and let people go to this meeting. Let me remind you also that our meeting tonight is going to start at 6 p.m. I do this because it takes about three or four hours for my staff to tear down all of our equipment and pack it in our semi and things like this. And so we start one hour earlier so that they can get to bed by one o'clock instead of two o'clock. Amen. And so uh, I encourage you to come back tonight. Man, I've got so much to share. I ran out of time today. I got some awesome, awesome things to share with you tonight. So come back if you can. Remember that we've got CDs and DVDs already duplicated out there. If you need prayer, just come forward. Let one of our prayer ministers pray for you. And the rest of you, I'm going to dismiss you. I'll see you tonight at 6 p.m. So God bless you. You're dismissed.